Well, good morning, Fairdale. It is so good to be here with you guys this morning. I, I have been so excited and so eager to be back with you guys and get to just be around you. You guys are such a gift. Do you know that? Do you know that you're a gift? You're like, yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> no, you are a fun bunch, and uh, it does my heart a lot of good to be here with you guys this morning. I've had the privilege, like Phil said, I've had the privilege of coming and sharing with you guys quite a few times now at this point when Brandon's gone. So here we are. It looks like Brandon's gone. So, no, I am grateful for his trust because he keeps letting me come back. I don't know if that's wisdom, but it's trust, and I'm thankful for it. And so uh, I'm thrilled to be back. I'm, uh, I've been eagerly looking forward to this weekend. And I love that I can look out and I can see so many familiar faces, so many people that I have shared some beautiful moments with in so many different ways. And I know some of you, you're looking at me like, they just let this guy sing and lead worship a few weeks ago, and now they're letting him talk. <laughs> at least he could have got a haircut. Um, <laughs> last time I showed up here with a haircut, you guys booed me, okay? <laughs> so... I mean, I'm doing the best I can, all right? Well, here, here's the deal. For those of you that I have yet to have the privilege of meeting, here's a little bit about me. My name is Ben, and my wife, Crystal, and I, together we lead a discipleship ministry, a discipleship organization aimed at calling and equipping fellow wayfarers, fellow believers to deeper living, to deeper faith with eyes fixed on Jesus and hearts set on heaven. Simply put, we want to see heavenly thinking invade earthly living. And it's because we are completely convinced that when Jesus is at the helm of our hearts, that our perspective then changes. And when our perspective sees that our present reality is anchored in eternity, well then, no matter what life we walk through, no matter what we encounter, ultimately, as we wayfare through this life, our response will be a faithful reflection of that eternal perspective. And so for us, our life will then look like giving the Holy Spirit all the room necessary to bring about the transformation in our lives into Christ-likeness, right? Like for his glory and for our good and all along the way until Jesus comes back or he calls us home. And so that's the transformation we're going after. We want to see that scene in the way that we live and in the way that we love and in the way that we lead in the here and now. And so we're just banking on if we zero in there, if we zero in there, then God will raise up prayerfully. He will raise up a movement of wayfaring disciples that will faithfully and fruitfully and humbly point people far from God to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so for us, that's what we're going after. That's what makes our heart race. That's what we're pursuing. That's what we are pouring into church leaders and church families and fellow wayfarers all along the way. We are trying to flip the script on the way we walk through this world so that we would see it that this is not home. And so that's the heartbeat of the Brave Way Home. That's what we get to be a part of. We get to be a part of a lot of beautiful ministry expressions. And one of them is teaching and speaking in a bunch of different churches near and far. And so I truly am grateful to be back here with you. The hope is always just to surrender the story that we've walked and spur others on to invite them into the same radical trust in God's goodness and his persevering, persevering hope in his promises. And so I don't know about you, 
but I'm hopeful for this morning. I'm excited to be with you guys. Let me ask the sound guy in the back, is it best that I grab a different mic? Because um, I feel like it's a little bit of woo, woo. Is everybody feeling that, hearing that? Anybody? Because it's washing over me like crazy every time I move. And you're like, Ben, we don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, then I'm going to live with it because I don't know what's going on around here. All right. So <laughs> you're like, this guy's crazy. Um, so here's the deal. I know you guys, you've been leaning into this, this summer theme, this retro summer, all summer long. And Brandon and Phil, when they told me, they're like, Ben, you have all kinds of freedom. You can pick whatever topic you want. Pick a, from a movie or a TV show or a song or a game. Anything that qualifies as retro. Anything that qualifies as retro. And my mind started going everywhere. I was like, I could talk about Dumb and Dumber. I could talk about The Princess Bride. I could go, I mean, I could go Jurassic Park. I could go E.T., The Sandlot, Toy Story, Hammer Pants, Slap Bracelets, Mullets. I was like the never-ending story. I was all over the place. I was even thinking of my Atari 2600 and its pristine two-bit graphics and the, my favorite game, Space Invaders. And I was like, I could talk about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. And then I was like, Brandon would never let me come back. And some of you are like, why? What's going on in Genesis 6? Go read it. And then you're like, oh, he would never let you come back. Right? But here's the deal. I was here a few weeks back, and some of you guys, you were giving Brandon a hard time, giving him some flack for picking things from the 90s. And you were like, that's not retro enough. And I want to just remind you of the definition of retro real quick. It's, it's the idea of relating to or reviving the recent past. Emphasis on recent past. And so, listen, if the 80s and 90s are not retro enough, maybe the word you're thinking of is vintage, okay? <laughs> vintage. I'm not talking antiquity. I'm not saying you're ancient. I'm just saying maybe vintage more than retro. So, but my mind went to my childhood. I grew up in the 80s. Do we have any 80s kids here? What a time to be alive, right? Some of you are like, I don't know. I don't remember if I was. I mean, we had He-Man. We had the Smurfs. We had G.I. Joe. We had the Care Bears, which is one of the most creepiest shows, looking back, thinking about that. But it, every time I see a kid running around with a mullet these days, I'm like, man, that glory was basking on my neck when I was in third grade, and mine was permed, Okay. You guys want to see a picture? I'm not going to show you a picture. No. It's legendary. No. I just started thinking of back to all kinds of memories of running off with my best friends and doing everything together as a friend group. These, these buddies of mine, my brother, my big sister, and our friends palling around everywhere doing everything together. And I started reminiscing over all of the adventures and the stunts that we pulled, all the bike rides and exploring and fishing and fort building and all the trouble that we would have gotten into had we ever been caught. Uh, and in a roundabout way, that led me to my inspiration for this morning. A tale of a young bunch of misfit friends in a little town called Astoria attempting to save their homes from foreclosure. And somehow, some way, they found an ancient map in their attic and they set out on an adventure to find a legendary pirate's long lost treasure. Does anyone know what movie I'm talking about? The Goonies. Hey, you guys, right? Yeah, the classic 1985 film. I am not going to do the truffle shuffle. Um, but this ridiculous, sometimes often obnoxious friend group, they walked a fine line between bravery and stupidity throughout this whole adventure that we call a movie. 
And it didn't, they didn't really fit into any other group, but they fit together. And on this adventure, you find them facing hard things. And in order to reach the end of this adventure, this journey, they had to work together, all of without the supervision, supervision of their parents. So very typical 80s scenario. And no, I do not have for you some deeply spiritually profound thing that I mined out of the movie to set before you some like Christological archetype from one of the characters. I, I watched the movie again the other night, and let me just tell you, as an adult, it hits different. Um, it just hits different. There's things you got to look past to enjoy it. But in, in the theme of uh, retro summer and in honor of the Goonies, like Phil said, I want to talk about friendship. I want to talk about friendship this morning. These relationships, these bonds between people that endure. Why? Because they love one another. Because they trust one another, because they show up for one another. These relationships that are reciprocal in nature. These people in our lives that notice the little things. And what do they do? They step up when it matters and they support you. Do you hear that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I got Phil's mic. I got Phil's mic. All right. So here's the deal. These people, these are the kind of friends, right? They're the people who they applaud your success because they've prayed for it, right? Instead of be threatened by it, right? These are, these are people in our lives that they hold you accountable to your words and your dreams. They keep their promises. They tell you the truth even when it hurts to hear it. These are the people that forgive you when you jack things up and they love you anyway. I mean, when scripture says as iron sharpens iron, God uses these people called friends to groom you and prune you and refine you in your character. These people that you can count on and they can count on you. Friends are people that we walk closely with, people that we do life with. I would say people that you wayfare with. They're friends. And no matter what season of life you are in, whether you're in adolescence or adulthood or somewhere in between, friends matter. We all need them. We need people in our circle. We need people on our team. We need people in our corner. And I'm sure you've heard it said a million times. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future, right? It matters who is in our circle. It matters in all seasons. We all need friends. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of stories of friendship and the character traits that come with healthy friendship. What I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time this morning and lean into one story found in Mark 2, where we, we get this glimpse of some friends doing some extraordinary things, going on a bit of an adventure, and through that, hopefully what we can do is glean some truths about the people that we need in our circle and the people we need to be in somebody else's circle. And so here's what's happening right before this. Jesus, he's been preaching and he's been teaching. He's been healing all kinds of ailments and illnesses. He's been casting out demons. So like typical Jesus things, okay? And crowds are forming, crowds upon crowds, to the point where everywhere he's going, crowds aren't just following him. They're running ahead to round up more people so that when he gets to wherever he's going, they're already there to meet him. And then this happens. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. 
And this is a skin disease that would society-wise put him at the margins. He would have been completely left out of everything because of what he was battling. And Jesus heals him. And then Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. You know what that dude does? He does exactly what you and I would have done. He tells everyone. In Mark chapter 1, verse 45, right after Jesus says, don't tell anybody, it says, instead, <laughs> he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Jesus is doing all kinds of ministry and he's looking for a place to rest. He's looking for a place to just chill a little bit. But people are coming from everywhere to be where Jesus is. And so that's where this story begins. Let me read this to us real quick. It's in Mark chapter 2. Let me pick it up in verse 1. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come home, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And now some teachers of the law, they were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow. Like, what a story. And you're like, Ben, I've heard that so many times in Sunday school, and I love that. But here's the deal. There is so much going on in these words about the power and the presence of Jesus. There's so much going on about the authority of Jesus to not just heal, but the authority to forgive sins. And nestled in this story is a window in to the kind of friends that we can be and should be. And so let's just take a closer look at this. I hope you caught this in verse one. It says that everyone heard he had come home. So catch that. Jesus is on his way to where he's staying, literally what he considers as his home. More than likely, he was staying at Peter's house. Who was Peter to Jesus? One of his disciples, one of his closest friends, okay? And so he's headed to his friend's house. And the crowd has already run ahead, told everybody, hey, Jesus is coming home. And they're like piling in on the couch before Jesus even gets there. And so I want you to get this picture as we dive into this, what's going on. He's at his friend's house, but his friend's house feels like his house, his home. He's going to his friend's house. You know what that feels like? 
I mean, do any of you guys have that kind of relationship where when you go to your friend's house, it feels like home? It feels like where you can just relax and be yourself and not have to worry about doing this or doing that. You just get to be home. I know for me growing up, it was a big deal for all of my friends to come to my house. And they were always, my family embraced them like family because that's what they needed. I think about my sons, the buddies. Those dudes roll into the house like they own it. <laughs> um, and I would not have it any other way. But here's a question for you. Do you know how you can tell when your friend's house feels like your home? Here's the question. Does your phone automatically connect to the Wi-Fi? <laughs> That's called trust. Okay, and now some of you are like questioning all of your friendships. Um, you may even be questioning your family right now. But here's the deal. Jesus is coming home and people are wanting more from him. And so he begins preaching the word to them. And while that's happening, these four dudes, these four friends, they bring their friend carrying him on a mat. And in verse three, it says that he's a paralytic. And we don't know a ton about him. But the word picture here in, in this passage is that more than likely he's quadriplegic. Or at the very least, his paralysis is severe. And that means this. He is completely dependent on others. He's completely dependent on his friends. The uniqueness of his situation suggests that he's desperate. He could not get to Jesus on his own, and they could not get to Jesus through the crowd. And so they did the most logical next thing. <laughs> they dug a hole in someone else's roof and plopped him down at Jesus' feet. That's wild, okay? I just want to talk about these friends. I want to talk about friends like this and maybe pull out some things that we can learn of how we be friends like this. And the first one is deep love. There is deep love. There is deep concern for the friend's well-being. There's a strong desire in these friends to see him get the help that he needs. And so their compassion, it's being pronounced in their actions. I mean, every other crowd that's following Jesus around, they all have expectations of Jesus. Many of these people, they are packed it around him because they're all clamoring to get near to Jesus. And so these friends, their actions, they're driven by their love for their friend. They did not want him left out. And it reminds me of this truth. Love is a choice way before it's an emotion. Love is a choice way before it's an emotion. And these friends, you think about it, if love requires action and love requires choice, well, these friends chose to act. And it points my heart to how many times Jesus would call his disciples to love others. And sometimes we lose what love means, but Jesus calls us to put the needs of others before ourselves. He calls us to serve others first. Later on, on Jesus' last night with his disciples in the upper room before he goes to the cross the next day to show them the full extent of his love, that is where Jesus calls them to love one another in the way that he has loved them. He even goes on to say that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So maybe the question for us this morning is, can that love be found in us? 
Can that love be found in us? Does that kind of love mark our friendships? How deep does it run? Have you handed out the internet, the Wi-Fi password to your home? Number two, not just deep love, but there is faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. These friends had faith to believe that Jesus could and Jesus would meet this need. And so don't miss this. They brought their friend to Jesus. They didn't bring him to somebody else. They didn't bring him to the teachers of the law. They didn't bring him anywhere else. They brought him to Jesus. They counted on Jesus to heal their friend. Think about it. If you've gone to all the trouble to get on somebody else's roof, dig a hole in it and drop your buddy down, think about how much harder it would have been to lift him back up rather than drop him down. I believe these friends, they were counting on him walking out of that room. They were counting on it. They recognized the need and they responded. They identified a solution and they pursued it. And with faith in Jesus, because they believed he could and he would make their friend whole. In verse five, it says that when Jesus saw their faith, their faith was visible. It could be seen because they had actions that went with it. And so it makes me want to ask you, where are you taking your friends? Where are you leading your friends? How evident is your faith to your friends? Like how clearly can they see that you have faith in Jesus, the people who walk closest with you? Or are they surprised when they find out you are a believer? Deep love, faith in Jesus. Number three, mission. There is mission. These friends did not just pray. They put their prayers to action and there's mutual mission among them. Think about every step in this little journey. They could have turned around and given up at any point. There's all kinds of twists and turns. There's challenges to overcome. There's all kinds of ways out to let somebody else figure it out. I mean, when, even when they heard that Jesus was coming to town, they went to go get their friend first. Think about that. Everybody else, they came and they got front row seats. <laughs> they went to go get their friends first. That's mission. These guys, when the crowd was crazy packed and there was no way to get through, they made the choice to keep trying, even when it meant going to a roof. That's mission. And when it seemed like the only option was to tear a hole in somebody else's roof and drop their buddy down into the hole, goodness, think about that phrase. <laughs> They counted the cost and they chose to act. That's mission. They navigated crowds and they refused to be discouraged. They refused to be derailed by anything, even roofs or first century consequences for damaging somebody else's property. They literally dug a hole in somebody else's roof to get their friend to Jesus. That's mission. There's commitment, ingenuity, and there's boldness. And I'm thinking like, which one of them was like, I think we got to go to the roof. You know what I mean? Like which one of them pitched the idea and the rest of them are like, okay, let's go, right? Like I think that's amazing because they all signed off on it. There's a determination to not drift or get distracted from the mission to, of getting their friend to Jesus. Are our friendships marked with that kind of mission? Is that what we are about? 
Fourth thing, teamwork. Teamwork. These friends worked together and they dared to do something different. There is a unity. They are united in faith and action. They're united in mission and purpose. There's togetherness. There's audacity. I mean, there's no way that one of them could have done it, right? There's no way that even two of them. And think about how difficult it would have been even if three of them were trying to do it. It took all of them working together, moving on mission together. And it reminds me of how we are to be the church, of how we are to be the body of believers, community together. And to think about all of the countless one another passages in scripture. I'm not going to read them all because there's like 51 of them, right? But it's to help us see how we are to relate to one another. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to love one another. We're to serve one another. We're to build one another up, spur one another on, bear one another's burdens and care for one another. And there's so many more on the list. But I love in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Why is that? It's because you matter. It's because you matter. And it makes me want to ask, what kind of friend am I? And what kind of friend are you? Like, what kind of friend am I? What kind of friend are you? Like, how deep is your love? How evident, how strong is your faith in Jesus? How mission-minded are you? How unified are we? Here's another way to put it. What are you willing to do to get your friends the healing they need? Like, what are you willing to do to get your friends to the feet of Jesus? What risks are you willing to take to go after that? There's a lot to say about what's going on in these next verses. More than we got time for, but I got to tell you right now, it's too exciting for me to just stop right there. And so Jesus, he sees the faith of these friends. He sees their faith and he forgives the sins of the paralytic. And I, I don't think anybody was expecting that. I mean, they're thinking about it. They're on the roof. They're looking down through the hole because it's not like they just dropped into the hole and walked around and got inside. They're looking down from there. And I wonder if when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, wait, what? We wanted him to walk. Like, what, like what's happening right now? But here's the thing, and I don't want us to miss this. Jesus is always going to speak to the deepest need. And it tells us this, his paralysis it was not his deepest problem. His paralysis was not his deepest problem. He was not just physically paralyzed. He was spiritually paralyzed. And Jesus is always going to speak to the deepest need because that's where we will find healing. The healing that we need. It's in his forgiveness. That's Jesus' greatest miracle is his forgiveness of our sins. So let me tell you this. Don't keep your distance from Jesus. Don't be content being close enough. Get to his feet. That's where healing happens. Don't stay at the edge of the crowd. Dig through whatever so that you can be at his feet. Because that's where he calls us to be. 
And that's where healing happens. But not everybody in the room is on board for that. These teachers of the law, they're sitting there. So think about that. They're taking up way more, too much room in a house that should probably be a standing room only kind of venue, right? And they're sitting down. But it's because they've come to investigate more so from a hostile, critical perspective. And they're thinking to themselves, like, who is this guy? Like, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Well, that's true. Only God can forgive sins. But they don't know who this guy is. And so Jesus, he reads their minds and he puts them on blast in front of everybody. Like, Jesus reads their minds. That is stinking cool, okay? And scary. It should be very scary. But he tells them that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And let me tell you, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That's a messianic claim to give himself that title. And they would have interpreted it as this guy is claiming to be God. And he turns to the man on the mat and he tells him to get up, take your mat and go. And that cat got up and he took his mat and he walked out in full view of everybody. Boom goes the dynamite, right? Literally, Jesus heals the guy and it communicates, I can heal and I can forgive and you can't do either. Think about that. Everyone is naturally and expectedly amazed and their natural response is to praise God because they ain't seen nothing like this before. I love how healing always leads to worship. <laughs> but I tell you, whenever I read a story in the Bible, my mind goes to which character am I? Where do I fit into this story? And so you may be hearing this right now and you may be seeing yourselves in the story and you may not be paralyzed physically, but you feel stuck you feel spiritually and emotionally and relationally stuck or isolated or left out. You might even feel like you're on the mat right now and it is hard to move and you need friends like this. But you may be hearing this story and you may have a friend like this and they need you to trust them to lead you to the one who can change everything for you. Think about the trust in this paralyzed man to let his friends tie a rope around him and drop him through the ceiling, okay? Or maybe you're the friend trying to help your friend get to Jesus. How hungry are you for their healing? How hungry are you for their healing? Don't give up on that. And maybe you found yourself maybe more like one of the teachers of the law than a friend nurturing a critical spirit towards those in need, so concerned with making Jesus fit your idea of Savior that you block the way for those who are desperate for him. Hear me. Don't be the reason somebody can't get to Jesus. Be the reason somebody can. Okay? Friends are important to our faith. And faith-filled friends take fervent action. We don't mess around. But you may be reading this or hearing this, and you may be thinking, Ben, I got my friends. <laughs> I got too many friends. I'm trying to get rid of some of them, right? You may be thinking, because they're in my house, right? You may be thinking, I'm good. I don't need any more. And I just want to challenge you with this. 
Think of the people that you know that need someone like you. Think of the people that need you to look out for them, to invite them, to include them, to make room for them. Who are those people? The ones around you that are left out there on the margins. And maybe they're on the mat somewhere waiting for somebody to step into their story and look out for them. Because I tell you what, I cannot read a passage like this and not hear it screaming at me, look out for the left out. Look out for the left out. These friends, they're not going to let their friend be left out. And even though the window that we have to learn about them, it's this small collection of decisions. These are incredibly powerful decisions. And it seems like it's more of a way of life for them to look out for the left out. It seems like this is probably not the only time that they picked their buddy up and taken him somewhere that they didn't have to, but they wanted to. This isn't the first time that they included him or made room for him. They've chosen to look out for the left out. And I know many of you, if not all of you, you you know my family and you know our story. My wife, Crystal, and I, we've been married for 21 years. God has been good to us. And we have three remarkable children, Ezra and Kala and Lila. Ezra and Lila, they live with us. Kala, she lives in heaven with her king. And together, the five of us, what we call our family Team Woods, and it's because we want to be a team. It's because it's our way to teach our kids who they are and whose they are. It's our way to help point their hearts to know that they are loved by Jesus and how to love others like Jesus. We call them our culture codes, right? These ways that we're trying to disciple our children to live on mission as a family. The way we bring definition to the way that we will relate to one another and everybody else. And look out for the left out. And that's been one of our culture codes for a long time now. And it began with a prayer with my sweet baby girl, Kala, on the way to school, that we would pray for God to give her the eyes to look out for the left out. And so to us, (laughs) this is the way we want to live life. The prayer is simply that God would open our eyes to see the needs of others, that he would open our hearts to feel the needs of others, and he would open our hands to meet the needs of others. And so I can't talk about look out for the left out and not talk about the little girl who inspired so much of that in my life. Our sweet Kala, tell you the story real quick. In the fall of 2018, at the age of nine, because her huge heart to look out for the left out, this girl wanted to go to Romania so badly with her daddy to go love and serve little girls her age at the risk of child marriage and trafficking that this girl started her own slime shop. Yes, the stuff that gets stuck in your carpet, right? She started her own slime shop, making her own recipe so she could raise the money so that she could go. And I'm telling you, that next morning after she launched her store, she woke up to like 50 orders. That girl was ready to drop out of school. I mean, we, we became her first employees. But I tell you, making and selling her slime Since her rescue to heaven in the summer of 2019, that's kind of all we've known to do. Keep making her slime. Following her recipes. Pressing into the vision that God put on her heart to look out for the left out. And since her rescue, 
we have made over 1,750 pounds of slime. And it has been shipped to 42 states and four other countries. And over $119,000 has been, $1,000 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 has been, $1,000